Bass and the Fresh Vibe podcast. I'm your host, Ro Hattie, coming at you from Treaty 7 Territory in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome, friends. If you're chiming in from anywhere in the podcast world, please review this podcast. Follow me on social medias at Rohati or at Rohati.Nagasar on Instagram. In this episode, why do some Christians hate the world? You notice that theme? It doesn't make sense. There must be something behind this. So I explore some scripture. I explore a different way of reading the Bible that might, and hopefully, lead to some liberated ways of understanding the Bible, but most importantly, how we are to conduct and live and just be in this world. So let's go forward. It's a short episode. Thanks again. Don't forget to subscribe and all that jazz. follow me on Twitter, then you would have read a recent tweet that said conservative Christians, and I, yes, I singled some out, care more about a booty bouncing in a cage at the Grammys than they do little brown children locked in cages in their own country. Typical. There's a curious feature in religious conservatism that reaches to control everyone, or at least it seems they want to mind everyone's business, religious or not. But we want to interrogate in this episode the religious kind. Many of you are familiar with this phenomenon. Some of you have lived it. Here's what I mean. Take, for instance, the most recent Grammy Awards show or even the Super Bowl performance featuring Rihanna. Every Super Bowl performance, if it's not a white rock band, white people and white religious conservatives in particular seem to lose their minds for a variety of reasons, including the sexualization of said Super Bowl performances. I caught the expected outrage that mostly white evangelicals generated on social media. I didn't really watch either Grammy Awards or Super Bowl. And the outrage kind of sounded something like this. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? Okay, maybe not, because that's just kind of funny to hear the voice of Helen Lovejoy from The Simpsons. It tends to be a little more nefarious than that. The usual conservative pundits and social media stars were all out in full force after the halftime show, questioning whether it was fit for kids. When you have black artists, especially black women, you also have to add an element of racism or misogynoir. At the Grammys, singers Sam Smith and Kim Petras dressed up for a devilish number, complete with pyrotechnics and horned costumes that sounded something like this. Apparently, the show was a subversive invitation that, if allowed to continue unopposed and unabated in society, would encourage children to, get this, convert to Satanism. Some people did say that. They did. They did. 
go look. I'm not going to share it. There exists a spectrum of religious conservatism. Some will constantly generate outrage because the worldview is built on having very clear adversaries. Have you noticed that? In fact, having a known pariah is often necessary because without a, quote, who to stand against, there's no discernible identity for, quote, what we're about. Summed up, it kind of sounds like, tell me what you're about by what you're against or who you're against, which goes against a more life-giving version of tell me what you're about by what you're for. On the other end of the spectrum, if it were so linear, there are others who are more old school. Now, there's probably a more accurate term, but this is the one I'm using. In a sense, their primary concern is to simply keep the world the way it's always been. Now, how far back you go, I guess, varies depending on preference. There are some valid attributes to this posture, namely preserving traditions, and that in turn helps give a sense of identity to organizations and institutions. It helps to know where we come from to help guide the future. But so often, the problem is most traditions like this only know how to settle. And as the saying goes, where you settle, there you die. Both examples have something in common. They appear rooted in fear. Fear of change, fear of losing cultural power if you have it, which is often the case for institutions born in the West. Fear of diversity in all of its forms. Fear of losing a specific way of life. And notably a fear from a type of God who brings wrath and calamity to all who are, quote, sinners, whatever that is. Which is partly why some scream so loudly about perceived cultural threats, I guess. Threats that might lead themselves, it's really a weak faith if it could, and others astray. I should point out the cognitive dissonance between political conservatism and champions of individualism and the freedom of choice versus religious conservatism that seeks to diminish individual freedoms in favor of government overreach to legislate particular behaviors doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to connect. It seems incongruous. But I'm curious to know how we even got to this place. And again, we speak to a brand of religious conservatism. The simplest answer seems to center around the value of preserving power in all of its forms, starting with institutional or religious, and then moving into other spaces like patriarchy, white supremacy, Christian supremacy, etc. We always go back to the notion of power. Whether you have it, whether you feel like you're losing it because you had it, and your response to those forces. When a tradition sees its particular, and usually white, way of life slipping away, they will do their darndest to keep the world and any cultural influence from eroding. Specifically on religion, and as someone who grew up in a conservative space, conservative evangelicalism to be specific, where does this hate the world posture come from? Well, I think it has to do with how you read and understand the Bible. Like Fundamentally, 
I think it has to do with your approach. The fancy word is hermeneutic. It's the way you interpret the Bible. So with that in mind, we now explore how not to read the Bible for all it's worth. It's a little play on a book title. Did you catch it? Those of you who've been around the Bible for a while know that there's a lot of interpretive work that goes into figuring out what the various letters and books of the Bible actually meant to the original readers and listeners. That's even before we get to a place where we can ask the question of how might we interpret the Bible in its letters for today. Most faith traditions care about this question. Now, some, of course, do not. They prefer a method of just taking a verse and jamming it into some type of modern worldview to accommodate that worldview. That's how you get teachings and interpretations that were never intended and downright frightful and harmful to those on the margins of society. And it's in this space, I think, where we can figure out what happened with the word world. Now, if we look in the Bible, admittedly, at first glance, our English translations seem to be pretty clear. Romans 12, 1 and 2 starts off with, So, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service, or in some translations, your spiritual act of worship. That's a memory verse for many of us. Verse 2, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. James 4, 4 reads, you unfaithful people, don't you know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Some versions say, you adulterous people. Well, okay, one more. 1 John 2, 15-16. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Everything that is in the world the craving for whatever the body feels, the craving for whatever the eyes see, and the arrogant pride in one's possessions is not of the Father, but is of the world. Well, there's some clues in that one. But ultimately, it seems pretty clear at first glance or first listening. The love of things in the world for religious conservatives and for many of us as we think of how we might interpret these passages usually refers to cultural issues and the apparent lack of particular morality, the range of this understanding might apply to practical things like movies, swear words and songs, or more nefarious problems, depending on where you sit on the spectrum, protesting LGBTQ anything. Most recently, we see the rise of critical race theory opponents Now, folks who do not know what critical race theory means, look back into season one and two for some podcast episodes with Dr. Bailey on that topic. But we have the most recent banning of books in schools in Florida and the attempt to do so in other places across the United States. And of course, that pulls into Canada as folks share in the same Facebook groups, it would seem. 
And, of course, watching TV events that have scantily clad devil dancers. Oddly enough, one of the problems that's never a problem is violence. So the same folks who have problems with swear words or sex in movies don't have a problem with violent culture like mass shootings. Okay, let's get back to the task. It turns out the word world in the New Testament means something different than how we would understand it. Now, if you've read my book, When We Belong, page 100, then you know where this is going. World in biblical Greek is cosmos. And so that's where we get our world for universe from. And one expected understanding in first century Palestine is in fact system. That's right, system. In fact, how the world operates, the system that we are embedded within or the cultural system that we might experience. To explain this, I introduced theologian Walter Wink in my book, and he makes the argument around system as being an appropriate translation and understanding to those first readers. He unpacks the meaning and also has a series of books where I pulled out his work from called Engaging the Powers. It's a three-part series. So what did system refer to? It's similar to how we would understand systems today, economic systems, or even the word that is becoming part of our lexicon now, systemic racism, systemic systems. Now, Christians understand these words because we understand sin as being systemic. Now, however your relationship with sin is today, many of us grew up in a context where sin has proliferated into the world. We can't escape it. It is systemic. We inherit a problem depending on your theology, of course. First century Jerusalem in Asia Minor. During that time, those who heard cosmos would have understood its meaning as system. Context always helps, of course. So let's add some. Remember, Jerusalem was in the process of being colonized by Rome. And because the Bible is written by minority groups, specifically religious minorities, when they juxtapose God versus the world, they are thinking about the occupying force of Rome against their experience as oppressed people. This included the systemic ways Rome was, say, occupying the land and subjugating minority groups. Activities range from controlling political power with the help of the Roman army, curtailing religious freedom, remember Caesar was God, widening economic disparity through unfair taxation and so forth. For early church members, there were other forms of systemic oppression on top of Rome, and that would extend it to include the intersections of patriarchy and, of course, ethnic divisions for a Jewish religion that launches off and now includes Gentiles, there are many different systemic intersections for us to consider when the word world enters our lexicon. With this in mind, we could then rewrite passages, let's say 1 John, to read something closer to do not love systems that oppress. Now I'm adding the word oppress there. But then you pick up the pieces later in 1 John 2.15. It spells out the arrogant pride, and it's connected to one's possessions. What the eyes see, the arrogant pride to one's possessions, this is a materialism now. 
Now, there's no capitalism at this time, but we can pull some sense here that the pride in one's possessions is opposed to the organization or the way that God would see how the world ought to operate. There's something incongruent with God's ways and the systems that produce pride in one's possessions, and that is how you even got those possessions to begin with. Suddenly, the meaning of the word world becomes crystal clear when we add systems, doesn't it? It's not about a total lack of morals, is it? This is about not loving and participating in oppressive systems that oppose God's intended way for social organization, that ultimately oppose God's intended vocation for the church. That way, which is often referred to as the kingdom of God in our midst or the kingdom of heaven in our midst, can be distilled to a vocation that pursues the ideas behind the last shall be first. And of course, love in all its forms, including love thy neighbor. This really changes Romans 12 too. Remember, present your body, put your body on the line by not conforming to the pattern of this world, the systems that oppress, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Non-conformity to the oppressive systems of the world puts your body on the line. It does. If any of you have engaged literally in protest, you know what this means. For any bodies pushed to the margins by oppressive systems, you know what it means to resist. You literally put your body on the line because it is your body that is being oppressed. And God says in Romans 12, 1, that this protest, this resistance is an act of worship. That doesn't sound like the Christians or the churches working so hard to retain cultural and political power in our world right now, does it? It doesn't really match up with the outrage generated around entertainment events. We ought to name it then. Let's name that religious conservative traditions in the West are not marginalized groups. I'm not saying there aren't churches that aren't economically poor, but they do not ascertain or even associate with the oppressed. That's not the worldview. And hence, lose the intended meaning from many biblical teachings, including the warning about loving the world. It's funny how we've switched, and some have switched, rather, the understanding around the world when you operate within the seat of privilege. One last thing on vocation. How ought we navigate moving forward with this new understanding? See, many church traditions have adopted a posture of gatekeeper, a gatekeeper to truth, a particular kind of truth, a gatekeeper to culture, certainly a gatekeeper to who gets power in our world, and a gatekeeper to what is deemed acceptable in culture. All this is derived from the seat of power, of cultural power, and that is slipping away. In some places, in some cities, that is almost gone for the church. I think of Canada in a post-Christian world where there is no real church that has influence in the day-to-day lives of Canadians. 
Now, I don't believe that those attributes of trying to be gatekeeper of truth or gatekeeper to culture are distinctly Christian attributes, unless one tries to reinterpret what being a Christ follower is about. Are we called to be Christ followers who are belligerent opposers to mainstream culture that challenges conservative moral expectations? I, I think not. I hope not, because I've missed the boat then. Or are we to hate a world by opposing oppressive systems, including those found in church communities, that seek to marginalize the least in our neighborhoods and cities? So now we're left with a choice of which one ought we choose. Reclaiming words like world by interpreting them within a context that those readers of the early letters in the Gospels would have understood gives us a pathway forward to understand and help guide our way in this moment at present. <laughs>